0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 43 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, some practical do's and don'ts for families whose children are returning to school next week. The High Court Judgment, which forces government to recant on many of its lockdown regulations within two weeks. We eavesdrop on South African Reserve Bank Governor Lisset Chekhaniago talking to a foreign audience. The Cape's Tigerberg Hospital is bracing for a fresh spike and Part 2 – of our BizNews colleague Chris Bateman's tale of living with cancer during the age of COVID 19. First, in the COVID 19 headlines today, economists and researchers at the International Monetary Fund dismissed criticism of lockdowns saying the approach has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. In a report published on the IMF's website today, they say lockdowns have reduced global COVID-19 fatalities by up to 90%, with a greater impact being seen in colder climates. The most successful approaches were in countries like New Zealand and Vietnam, where regulations were purpose-specific. Although South Africa has been praised for its early lockdown decision, a raft of irrational regulations implemented in the wake of that have been strongly condemned in the High Court. In a judgment handed down yesterday, Mr. Justice Norman Davis slammed many of the regulations introduced by Cogta Minister Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma, calling them irrational, unconstitutional, and even paternalistic. He has ordered government to recant on these regulations within 14 days. More on the judgment in this episode with constitutional lawyer and Free Market Foundation chief executive Leon Lowe. Sweden's top epidemiologist Andres Tegnel has admitted that the country's no lockdown approach to the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in too many deaths and if he could do it again, he would opt for something different. Although Sweden did ban gatherings of more than 50 people, pretty much everything else, from restaurants to schools, shops to gyms, continued operating as before. But speaking to Swedish radio this week, Tegnell said with hindsight, he would have opted for something between Sweden's approach and what the rest of the world has done. After a quiet week, South African reported deaths from COVID-19 rose to 50 on Tuesday. That's the second highest of any day thus far, taking the total to over 750. New cases, however, posted their fourth successive daily decline at 1,455, and that after peaking at 1,823 last Friday. Healthcare workers are bracing for a rebound in the cases, however, after South Africa's workplace was freed up on Monday, with the easing to Level 3. Globally, reported infections continue to rise, with the total there passing 6.5 million on Wednesday, but daily deaths are still falling, running at about half the mid-April peak now. Brazil has risen past the United States, with Tuesday's daily deaths at 1,232 against America's 1,134. India, Peru and Mexico are also seeing significant increases in their daily mortalities. Dr. Deepak Patel is the Principal Clinical Specialist at Discovery Vitality and he was also the star of the show at a webinar that's just ended earlier today. Deepak, well attended. Yes,
1: it seemed that at once there were over a thousand people who kind of signed on to it. I saw there were more than seven eight hundred people at one stage.
0: It's amazing how things have changed and the the way we can communicate to large audiences now that you'd battle to get in into one place at one time.
1: yeah, no, absolutely amazing actually. It seems a bit kind of daunting not knowing and making eye contact with your audience but nevertheless i think it's amazing that we can do this
0: you specialized in pediatrics at vits and i see that you went and specialized in sports medicine at uct thereafter but as far as the pediatrics is concerned that positions you very well to give us some insight into what we should expect going back to school next week
1: Yes, I mean, my position is also strongly influenced by the Pediatric Association position and the kind of experts that have been in various webinars and also advising the state. So I think we have some really good scientists. I think they've been scouring the international literature They've been distilling some of that information and putting it into manageable bits that we can all understand, pediatricians included.
0: There's a lot of confusion, though, at the moment for many in South Africa.
1: Yes, I mean, there is. And I think, and the confusion, I think, stems really from mixed messages that, in a sense, partly are inevitable. So we are easing the lockdown when the infection rates are going up. I think that in itself to some extent is a mixed message. But nevertheless, I think there are scientists and there are authoritative voices I think we should be listening to. I mean, I can understand confusion because people are also looking at social media and there are lots of people raising questions. I think their teachers who are raising questions about this their preparedness, but I think the the science is pretty clear, actually. Five months of living with this virus as a global community has actually generated a huge amount of factual information and particularly how it affects children and adolescents.
0: Do children also have to wear masks when they go back to school? Yes.
1: Yes. I think, by and large, the regulations or the suggestions in terms of our behaviour that apply to adults apply equally to children. So, you know, physical distancing is important. Wearing a mask when you're outdoors, by outdoors I mean, you know, at school, in public places, definitely children should be wearing a mask, I think, The the kids that are absolutely exempt from that are, are children under the age of two. I think it would be difficult to sustain kind of continuous wearing of a mask in an age group between two and four, two and five years of age. But children five years and over should actually be encouraged to wear a mask and wear it properly.
0: What about in the classrooms? When they have their lessons definitely,
1: I think you know that's a kind of a social gathering if you if you wish. there is a, a risk that one child can transmit it to another, and while they're in the class, they should be wearing the mask. I think there's a bigger risk actually of teachers who inter- interact closely with children and who might pick up. The virus from other teachers in their interaction with other teachers or with other adults there's a greater chance of adults transmitting it to kids than kids transmitting it to adults but there is a chance definitely of kids transmitting it to other kids
0: when one has a look at the at what we know about the coronavirus so far it does appear as though the more you're exposed to it, or we see this from health workers, then the more you are at risk. Are schools going to be able to test or check when the uh, children come in that they don't become a, a new hotspot for infections?
1: Yes. So I think what's recommended is some form of screening happens every day with the child. And the responsibility is equally on parents as it is on the school. So parents who have children who are sick and by sick, we mean with any kind of upper respiratory tract symptoms. Fever, by the way, is not necessarily a common feature of coronavirus infection in children. So, you know, that scanning, the thermal scanning alone is not a reliable kind of screening tool. It has to, there's a responsibility on parents to see whether their child is sick, has symptoms of a cold or flu, or even vomiting and diarrhea. Those children should be kept out of school by the parents. There should be an added responsibility on the school to make sure that those kids actually stay at home. Thermal scanners, as I said, isn't absolutely necessary, and schools don't have to have thermal scanners before they open.
0: In the webinar earlier today, what were the main thrust of the questions that you were asked? So there wasn't a lot of time for questions.
1: I think what the webinar addressed Firstly, is kind of the medical evidence, and I think a lot of the questions are directed to that science. What is the scientific evidence about SARS-CoV-2 and children? And the good news here, and really we should take it as good news, is that this virus seems to have a very mild kind of, if any, Effect on children. So compared to other respiratory viruses that we've come to live with in practice, in my practice, in winter, really, I just saw kids with runny noses, cough, fever, and respiratory viruses were rampant in, in winter. This particular virus actually in the vast majority of, of children does not cause symptoms. And if it causes symptoms, they're mild symptoms compared even to a virus like respiratory syncytial virus or influenza virus. Um, And only in the very rare case would it lead to hospitalization. And again, in the exceptional kind of case, would it lead to, to more serious consequences such as death? So the good news is that kids seem to handle this virus very well. And there are biological reasons for that. We don't know the full biology of it, but we do know that the ACE2 receptors, which people are talking a lot about, where the coronavirus attaches seems to be less prevalent. The distribution of that ACE2 receptors is much lower in children than it is in adults. Children transmit a smaller dose of the virus to each other. There are a few biological factors. There's also competition with other bugs. And coronavirus, in a sense, is struggling with other bugs that are prevalent to get a foothold, so to speak. So in a way, I think one has to worry less about the effects of this virus in children and adolescents. Than one has to do about other respiratory viruses,
0: so going back to school is a good idea.
1: I think it is generally a good idea. I think we need to be cautious. My approach anyway is to to adopt a bit of a cautious approach in the sense that you know there are lots of things changing at the same time. Going to school is one such thing. I think The risks associated with going to school are much lower than the risk associated with, for instance, opening liquor outlets. I mean, you know, seeing those long queues wasn't very heartening for me. And I think the risks associated with opening places of worship. It's been well shown internationally that the virus has spread In places of worship, there have been nodes of high infection in the international experience, even in the early stages in Korea, in Iran. You know, it was places of worship that actually allowed the virus to take a foothold and spread. So I think schools are less of a node of spread. But look, we have to wait and see. We have to do this cautiously, allowing Grade sevens and grade 12s to take the plunge first is the right approach. And then let's see what, how this pans out over the next month or so. I mean, we may have to change our, our decisions, but for the time being, I would say it is generally a good thing. And people do have to take their own particular con- circumstances into account.
0: So just be vigilant at home as well as uh, when you send your children to school
1: yes i think you know parents going back to work is is a bigger risk factor than kids going back to school even at home i think teaching your child the basics washing hands almost obsessively unfortunately whenever you t- before you touch your face you should wash your hands as soon as you come back from school you should wash your hands with with soap and water the 20 second 20 to 30 second rule at school you should do that regularly or use a sanitizer a hand sanitizer so yes all those measures would apply i think there would be added measures if there are people in the household who have comorbidities that put them at serious risk for serious covid disease uh, i think their physical distancing might be more important so if they are grandparents for instance much as possible they should perhaps you know not interact not hug their grandchildren too much it varies by household really but by and large I think they should take those precautions until we kind of know exactly how this virus is going to play out in our situation
2: Weston Cave has, according to the latest data, two thirds of the coronavirus cases in the country. The province says that diabetes and hypertension are the most common comorbidities for COVID 19 deaths in the province. We spoke to George Munting, the assistant manager and clinical pharmacist of Tigerberg Hospital, who said there had been an increase in cases admitted to the hospital since the lockdown has been eased.
3: Tigerberg anticipated this. Since the start of the lockdown, they've managed to institute quite a few uh, anticipatory moves and equipment. So they've installed field hospital right next to the hospital, which can accommodate them, to which we can decant COVID cases. Uh, Some of our wards have now amalgamated and become COVID wards, and so that we can sort of isolate it from the rest of the hospital to the best we can under the circumstances personnel are, if I may use the term positive, uh, not to be misconstrued on the increase, but I think uh, coping well under the circumstances.
2: So what was the influx of numbers like at Tigerberg? I mean, how many cases do you have to deal with?
3: Well, they screen at the hospital two to three hundred a day. And after triaging them, the majority of cases sent home for isolation or quarantine, you know, only about 5 6% uh, don't know the exact figures with me now are kept in hospital for further investigations so or perhaps even at a much more serious stage. Screening is, is very active.
2: Are you coping with ICU? Because what happened in many overseas countries is that ICU units got overwhelmed.
3: As I said, the work beforehand during the lockdown period enabled the hospital to really strategically manage some of the wards and sort of increase the capacity for ICU. ICU is getting full at this stage, but the capacity was well managed and anticipated. So they're much busier than they used to be than a month ago, but i think managing quite well.
2: The other thing that seems to have happened is initially a lot of people were put on ventilators, but it seems that hospitals are coping better using other methods.
3: At this stage, the... Ventilators are still the platform for patients that have gone that far, although the uh, the clinical staff and management is quite aware of other methods and interventions being used, uh, putting them on capnic masks and uh, perhaps using uh, medication inhaled for asthma and things like that to try and increase capacity of the lung. So they are being investigated. So it's a mixture and it's patient-specific, but coping.
2: What did you find as a pharmacist? What works best for the treatment of COVID-19 patients? The focus seems to have moved away from chloroquine and then to remdesivir. And more recently, doctors have said vitamin D could be good and plain old ibuprofen.
3: Yeah. Well, once again, the clinical staff was well cognizant of... What is happening or has happened at other institutions, especially where the COVID was first reported and seen and most definitely chloroquine was part of the, of the regimen given and uh, perhaps still is. And there might be reasons why not you get the patients that don't react to that, but they still definitely where possibly they're trying to institute Or perhaps hydroxychloroquine, depending which one is available as part of the treatment regimen. And uh, successes are there. I don't have the figures on hand, but uh, we do notice that their attempts are, you know, reaping good rewards in many cases.
2: Do you think there's other treatments out there that could be tried?
3: Oh, yeah. Look, as reports come in, you're looking at some of your agents. To suppress the viral load per se there are others that are antibodies against the viruses that is being used and these are much more selective treatments much more expensive and so one needs to manage these resources well at this stage and select the people very early so they are looking at a receptive to these things at the moment
2: what do you think the cases in the western cape are worse than the rest of the country
3: uh, my opinion is there's a couple of things and that is that think, you know, there are a couple of hotspots that were critically identified and anticipated hotspots as well. So I think there's very smart and strategic uh, algorithms that have been delivered by some of the epidemiologists and consequently they're testing in places where they anticipated, And so the apparent numbers seem to be very high, but I think it's just because they, they're smart about their testing. Secondly, Cape Town has got a population with risk factors, TB and uh, HIV, but I think it started much earlier than us well. Cape Town was, was the place for tourists, so I think we may have had a, a vector from, from overseas long before the rest of South Africa had it, so I think these are all contributing factors.
2: Sorry, so you mm-hmm. think they might be further on the curve?
3: I think so. I definitely think so. Anticipated peak most probably towards the end of July. But I think the signs are there, yeah, sure.
2: Is there any chance that the Teigenberg or Teigenberg could be overwhelmed with, with cases?
3: The question to answer the, the safe way is say we are well prepared and there are decanting areas. which which can be utilized and is ready. So in principle, they are ready for it. It depends on what type of patient and their numbers so that one can utilize these peripheral places where they can be managed.
2: A worry that's cropped up at most hospitals all over the world is that people do neglect other care that they need at this moment, health care. Are people coming in for their regular medicines? Are people coming in for their antiretroviral drugs as they normally would?
3: Yes, they do. Of course, we put uh, protocols in action for them to stabilize. We supply them with more than unsupply, but they are most certainly... It's still in the loop and very actively monitored and um, clinics are aware of them. They're cognizant of them. So I can't say that that has been neglected now.
2: And in the case of heart attacks or high blood pressure, would people still go to hospital, still get their their medication?
3: Yes. Trauma runs as normal. So those avenues are available. Those platforms are. doesn't distinguish or neglect because of COVID. They are very much receptive to the to the uh, standard needs as it used to be but
2: are, are people coming in for other cases say for heart attacks or whatever are they kept separately from covid 19 cases
3: yes they will be absolutely by default they had more risk so one needs to, uh, to, to be much more cognizant of that and that is implemented in the hospital for sure
2: is there a problem with healthcare workers get getting ill? And the other question I wanted to ask, do you guys have enough PPE for your healthcare workers?
3: Yeah, Linda, as any of these hospitals where COVID presents your healthcare workers the front line, so absolutely, uh, healthcare workers are predisposed. They also get sick. They have to be isolated. But, and And I think they recognize this. Uh, at the moment, it doesn't compromise uh, the care that the patients get. And um, sufficient PPE is available for these folks. Um, we're not aware, certainly at Tigerberg, of uh, problematic channels for access to, to PPE. So it, it seems to be, it seems to be working quite well.
2: Have you seen a spike in, in increases since that the lockdown is starting to be eased?
3: Certainly there has been uh, Increase in cases And uh, I think The doubling of figures Now in the Western Cape Is probably every 10 days or so Where it used to be every 15 during lockdown So the spike Is there and that's quite natural And uh, It just means But but the curve is right but um, The cases will definitely increase And, And that's evident Throughout
0: the country well, the judgment that came out yesterday from Justice Norman Davis has uh, caused enormous amount of discussion in South Africa, not least from the Free Market Foundation, whose chief executive, Leon Lowe, joins us now. Leon, I found the judgment fascinating. It also showed that there seems to be a disconnect between the Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs or, of course, Dlamini-Zuma, and the constitution. It didn't appear as though she, well the judge said that she didn't take much of this into account when putting her regulations forward. What is your reading about all of this and and maybe to start with what does it tell us about our judiciary in South Africa?
4: Well firstly let me say it's a wonderful day for our judiciary it shows that it's independent and it shows that it's courageous and willing to rule over and stand up to the government when they don't honour the constitution and the Constitution is one thing here. More seriously, this lockdown, at least at the highest level, has been a total abolition of all human liberty and human rights. Total. You know, no freedom of movement, censorship, freedom of association, freedom of expression, access to everything was just banned. Lifestyle freedom, human dignity, every known freedom in the Constitution was simply suspended. Now, to do that, a government has to have an extremely good reason, not something that is killing a few hundred people at worst, but say, you know, it would have to be a real uh, major disaster, which has not yet happened. But more importantly, that no matter how big a disaster, no matter what it is, as Judge Davis has said, the government must still comply with some basic requirements of the Constitution. If it wants to suspend any human rights, it must do so in accordance with the section that says it must be consistent with democracy, and democratic values and it must be consistent with section one that says we must abide by the rule of law and personal freedom and human equality and human dignity and uh, it's all over the constitution there's what are are loosely called constitutional values these have just been ignored completely overwhelmed you know we had the minister of police chele declaring just on TV that people have to have an old receipt if they smoke cigarettes. didn't say what kind of receipt was to be on the receipt. Could a handwritten receipt given by some illicit trader, would that be good enough, you know, backdated? It's just complete nonsense, actually. You can't be polite about it. I thought Judge Davis was very polite about the shocking stuff that has happened, completely disgraceful. Totally irrational, and that was his point. The absence Hmm. of rationality.
0: Does this say much about the way our law is constructed? This is your area of expertise, of course.
4: Yes, let's understand. The Constitution says that the foundational principle of South Africa is the rule of law and personal freedom, and the rule of law, one element of which, according to our Constitution, is the rationality principle, and that means that there must be a rational connection or what would be called in law a nexus, a link, between a measure, a law, and an objective. In other words, there must be a reasonable ground for believing that that measure can have the desired outcome. It doesn't have to be the best. The court doesn't tell the government what its policies should be. It just says that there must be some logical reason to believe the measure could possibly have the desired outcome. And the judge basically said that we have multiple measures here which are completely devoid of logic. The judge cited a few examples. I would have liked a long list, which would basically have been almost every element of the regulations. It's hard to find one that isn't somehow devoid of logic. And, you know, for example... You have that you may jog or walk on a boardwalk, but not on a beach, you know. And the judge says, well, hold on a sec. How can there be any logical difference between the two? Or you can swim in a swimming pool, but not in the sea. Or you can smoke cigarettes, provided you have a receipt from before the lockdown started, as if somehow the presence or the, when you bought the cigarettes has some relevance to health. There's no logical link there. It makes no sense whatsoever. So that the judge, quite correctly, Judge Davis, said the rationality principle required by just common sense, frankly, but certainly by our Constitution, has been just ignored. It's as if the government sort of sat down and, you know, they want a receipt for people who smoke. I wonder what they were smoking and whether they had a receipt when they came up with a lot of these measures. They're just completely devoid of any possible logic and uh, Judge Davis was quite generous, I think, quite kind in assuming that there was some intelligence behind whoever came up with these, whoever advised the minister. But it's just completely loony, actually. You can't be polite about it.
0: But surely the good news here is that politicians aren't going to get away with this. The court or the judge has said fix it in the next 14 days.
4: Yes, and that is wonderful news for South Africans. I'm pretty excited about the fact that the court has done this, that it's had the courage to do it, that it's given the government relatively short amount of time to fix it, and that it's been so firm. In other words, the judge didn't say this will be allowed and that won't be allowed, didn't go through a sort of checklist of every measure and just said, look, this whole lot, this whole bundle is so devoid of logic and reason and rationality, that the whole lot is out unless you fix it. Now, what the government will probably do, sadly, it's very sad, I mean, we should be excited about our court and what it's done, but the government will probably just go away and try and produce the same nonsense in a way that's legal, you know, make it sort of somehow plausible. What it should do, instead of the police being, as they were under apartheid to police force, they should now be a police service. And what they should do is follow, for example, the Swedish model and have the police and the army going around and handing out gloves and, and, and sanitizer and masks and advising people on social distancing and helping. People don't want to die. They don't want to be sick. All that government needs to do is tell them how to remain healthy and, and promote that. This draconian abolition of every human right that there is in the Constitution literally just abolished overnight, is not necessary and doesn't promote health, and quite the opposite, it actually promotes ill health.
0: Judge Davis refers to the Director-General of Nkosozana of Zuma's department, saying the power exercised under lockdown regulations is for the public's good. And the judge described this as a paternalistic approach rather than what one would expect from a government, which is a service approach.
4: I am delighted that the courts have blown the whistle. I hope more of this will come. There's, for example, another case on the tobacco elements, which are just completely devoid of logic, it seems. It is a problem, and there has been a more and more of a movement of lawmaking from Parliament, the legislature, to Pretoria the executive. In other words, laws are now made behind closed doors at smoke-free rooms instead of in the public, transparent public debate and participation. Almost every new act in Parliament delegates the lawmaking function to the executive, so the DG, and for that matter all DGs, are becoming intoxicated with power, that they can basically, they have the feeling they can do whatever they like. Hopefully this is a turning point, and You know, maybe the COVID story will be, strangely enough, a blessing in disguise in that eventually we may get back to honoring the separation of powers, honoring the requirements for law to be rational, honoring the requirement for bona fide, good faith, public participation, all of which I'm afraid has been severely eroded in the last few years.
2: There has been increasing pressure from within ANC ranks for the South African Reserve Bank to help plug the deficit hole. The head of the ANC's economic transformation, Inok has suggested that the bank help finance development and infrastructure through the creation of a 500 billion rand fund. But yesterday, this was rebuffed by Finance Minister Tito Mbeweni, who said he was against printing money. In a webinar with Chris Vanikerk, the director of the South African Chamber of Commerce in the UK, Reserve Bank Governor Lesetia Ghaniago has ruled out financing the government. Mr. Lesetia said there was a limit to what central banks could do in emerging markets. He also gave an overview of what he thought the impact of COVID-19 would be on the economy.
5: What we had seen was that from a central bank perspective, we responded with an adjustment in the policies, policy rate of 275 basis points from January. We had a modest 25 basis point uh, adjustment in January, which was to react to the pending uh, recession. And once COVID-19 hit us, we had to respond uh, much more aggressively. What made it possible for South Africa to respond in this, uh, in this manner? We were able to respond in this manner because the Central Bank had built buffers and had a history of independence and was able to also use the credibility that we have in the South African policy space, but also globally, that the response of the monetary authorities was always going to be seen to be a prudent response. But we also picked up that there was a dislocation in the financial market, and because there was a dislocation in the financial market, we had to inject liquidity uh, into uh, the market. Firstly, by putting in additional repo facilities for the banking sector to meet their liquidity requirement, and secondly, by embarking on uh, some bond purchases to facilitate the functioning of uh, the market. And to be clear, we were doing this because we wanted the markets to continue to function rather than because we didn't like the price that we had seen in the market. We also made, provided regulatory relief to the uh, sector by uh, the South Banking sector, has always been well capitalised with ample liquidity and it had ample buffers. And we allowed them to dip into those buffers so that they could continue to uh, support the economy. The fiscal authorities did respond with some fiscal relief measures, but they didn't have the extent of the space that the monetary authorities have. But providing relief and, uh, that could stimulate demand is not going to work if the economy is in a lockdown. And so the measures that we have taken, the effect thereof will only be felt now as the economy reopens and We will continue to monitor that, and we stand ready to deploy our tools uh, to provide relief to uh, the South African economy.
1: Do you have a feeling yet of how this is going to affect the the South African economy, or is it just too early to say?
5: Well, it is too early to say, but we can already tell what the effects are. What we are not able to do is to attach a number to that. We expect the South African economy to contract by 7% uh, this year. Some people say that we are optimistic, but it is a focus that we could go with given the evidence and the data uh, that we have at the moment. Uh, it's like making policy in the dark because even the statistical agency, FSA, was under lockdown. And the figures that they are going to be releasing are going to have to be adjusted figures rather than the figures they would have normally released. And they had to delay the release of the a uh, gross domestic uh, product number. So they have have to delay uh, the publication of the inflation numbers. And from us as the central bank, one of the publications that is used is the South African Reserve Bank quarterly bulletin. The June quarterly bulletin will now only be released in July because we need to reconcile things with South Africa. But let me just paint uh, this picture. What you have had under the lockdown was that people were restricted in terms of the goods and services that they could actually purchase. That meant that the retail sector could only be operating to provide what was deemed to be essentials. Understandably, very few people then were going to a shopping centres to observe social distancing. That basically meant that the retailers were going to be struggling with rental, and they Approached the landlord and they were asking for relief from the landlord, uh, saying that, well, they cannot pay the renter. And which means that if they are not paying the landlord, if the landlord have bonds, the landlord ends up saying to the bank, sorry, but I can't say this my bond because the tenants are not paying. The property sector uh, would be obviously affected. The financial sector, too, will be affected. The earlier indications that we have seen had been that uh, financial activity was lower. During the lockdown, people were not swiping their credit card. They were yep. not withdrawing cash from the ATMs and so forth. So you would expect that that would happen. If the retailers were struggling, that goes without saying that their suppliers are going to be struggling as well. let now they are going to have to confront the kind of things that they have seen of very generous rental increases from one year to the next is going to be a thing of the past Uh, because as it stands now with us you in london and we are able to converse the question comes why do i have to fly to london to come and meet you if we can do it in this manner and similar questions are being asked office bound workers are able to continue working remotely and there's going to be question marks about the amount of office space that yeah. firms actually uh, require. So the property sector is also not going to be the same. But even as we open the economy, there are some businesses that might actually not make it in spite of the support uh, that we are providing. And one of the support that we had, had to provide this was that together with the National Treasury and the Banking Association had to provide relief. Really to small to medium-sized enterprises uh, to take them through over the next six months and assist them uh, with the cash flow. That means that the banks themselves would have had to make uh, additional provisions and we have to provide them with regulatory relief so that they are able to support clients in an environment like this. One of the sectors that was kept open for a, on a limited basis was mining, And the reason was a very simple one. Our electricity is coal-fired, and we needed the coal, so we needed to keep the mines open. But our mines are deep, and because our mines are deep, social distancing is very difficult. And so the stage was to first open open cast mining and say that if you use those, they are able to maintain social distancing. We already had on one or two of the mines, where there was a, a range of infections of uh, up, up to 100 uh, people. So it's going to be difficult. I think that the key message here is that there might be a post-COVID economy at some stage. I don't know when that post-COVID economy is going to be. I don't know whether it's a year, two years, or three years. I don't know. It depends on whether you get a vaccine or a cure. I don't know. What is in no doubt, though, is that over the next 12 to 24 months, we are going to have to learn to live with an economy in the era of COVID. We are going to have to manage an economy in the context that COVID is here and we are going to have to learn to live with it. What
0: are your thoughts about tourism? Is that a sector that you're going to did you see increasing support going to have to be directed towards?
5: The tourism sector suffered enormously in the region. There are two other countries which are so tourism-intensive. Their economies are decimated. I mean, Seychelles and Mauritius, that's what they offer. They offer tourism. And people can't even get there, even if they wanted to get there. And in South Africa, we had also seen that initially it looked like the epicenter of the virus was going to be Johannesburg and Gauteng, but now it looks like it's Cape Town and the Western Cape. The Western Cape is also one province that is very dependent uh, on tourism. When people think, I am going to South Africa, they think of Cape Town, they think of Temple Mountain and the sea. So we're going to have to restart the, restart the session because it's a very important area of foreign exchange. But also, we're probably going to have to restart with uh, domestic tourism. The Minister of Tourism has been having these conversations with the sector. Even as we open the economy now and people are going back to work, people are reluctant to stay uh, in hotels. So tourism is going to suffer in both uh, of its aspects. Business tourism in the form of conventions and all of that. And then, of course, uh, the leisure uh, tourism. But even as you open tourism, have we cared to look at what is happening in the aviation sector? It's being decimated. Tourism is going to take time. Tourism and the aviation sector are so interlinked. so it's yeah. also going to be a function of whether the aviation sector is, going, is able to be started, mm-hmm. restarted uh, yeah. in good time. But even as we start and you say that you are reopening tourism, how well. do you maintain social distancing in an aeroplane?
1: Do you have any concerns about your debt to GDP ratio and how you see that?
5: Lucas, a matter of course, we do not comment about fiscal policy. But in this environment, what we had faced was that we saw a dysfunction in our financial market and we started to do bond purchases. And as we were doing the bond purchases, there were louder voices coming up in South Africa that says that you have got to do quantitative uh, easing. There were voices that were saying that, well, government can't afford this interest bill. Why doesn't the central bank just lend to the government at 0% interest? And how have we thought about this? Firstly, was that our bond purchases had nothing to do with trying to affect the shape of the yield curve or to try and push the yield curve lower or anything of that sort. It was to get the financial market to function as part of the mandate of the central bank, one of which is to oversee the financial system and make sure that there is resilience in the financial system. And that is what we ended up doing. But let me also say that there is a limit to central bank purchases especially if you are an emerging uh, market. It's okay for the U.S. to embark on massive QE when they are faced with extremely low inflation and where their interest rates are close to zero. It's okay for the U.K. to talk about quantitative easing when they are faced with a similar situation. It's okay for the European Central Bank to embark on quantitative easing when Europe... Area inflation was at like 0.1 or something like that, and that at some stage even threatening to go negative. And it's okay for Japan to do it because they have a faced deflation, and so they ended up doing that. All of these countries can do these things with the knowledge that their currencies are reserve currencies, and because their currencies are reserve currencies, people will continue to hold them. And so even as the U.S. was embarking on quantitative easing, what you saw was people running to the U.S. saying they are running to the safe haven of the dollar. That is not a luxury South Africa has. So we can go in and try and get the markets to function, but you can't embark on a massive quantitative easing when uh, you do not have a currency that is a reserve currency. Secondly is that our inflation has declined, but we still have inflation. We still expect it to average 3.6 this year. And our policy rate is at 3.75. We are almost getting to neutral in terms of a real rate. And so unless inflation declines significantly further, the ability to provide further monetary easing is limited. There is still scope for us to continue to support the economy deploying our tools. It is not an unlimited space. That is the point I am trying to make. And lastly, given that we are not a reserve currency, massive QE will eventually find itself into the foreign exchange market. People will find that it is cheaper to create foreign exchange that way if there are just cheap or free rent coming into uh, the market and what you might then end up seeing would then be a depreciation of the currency which could then reignite inflation and all of that at the moment it is not our worry that we will have a surging inflation over the next 12 to 18 months part of it being the prudent stance that the central bank has taken And the fact that the currency actually recovered over the past uh, month suggests that the steps that we have taken have been seen to be prudent rather than reckless.
0: Do you have any other thoughts on what the post-COVID world is going to look like?
5: I wish I would know what it would look like. But lessons we have learned, very valuable lessons. The first lesson for me is that building policy buffers is very important. The countries that were able to respond with fiscal policy and with monetary policy were those which had the policy buffers to do so. And you had raised the question, for example, about South Africa's debt. Getting into the 2008 crisis, South Africa had net debt of 23% of GDP. So there was was, was the policy buffer it got into this COVID crisis with debt to GDP over 60%. Based on the pressure of its own projections, debt to GDP could easily get to 80%. And if it gets to 80%, questions have got to be asked. Should you be hit by a new crisis with debt to GDP at 80%, uh, would you be able to respond? And the answer is that, well, you might be able to respond but that does not look like that is the option that you have. You will not be able to respond with a massive stimulus. I mean, the fiscal stimulus, the stimulus that was provided now to respond to COVID was just about 500 billion rents. In 2008, we were able to respond with close to a trillion rent. And the reason for that was that we had the policy, the policy buffers. Those policy buffers from a central bank perspective, it included us having inflation contained to where we wanted it, which was uh, closer to the midpoint of our inflation target range, so inflation was below 4.5%. So that gave us the scope to be able to, that was one policy buffer. The second policy buffer from a central bank perspective has to do with the regulatory capital and the liquidity that was imposed on the sector, and the buffers that were kept by the sector above the regulatory capital and the liquidity buffers that. So we were able to resist that. And lastly, that because we have had such a deep financial market and that government has always financed itself in, uh, in the bond market, when there was a dislocation in the bond market, the central bank was able to deploy its balance sheet to get the financial market to work right. so that government can continue. To fund itself, so that the buffers become important. The last one is that even in the private sector, the building of redundancies is going to be important. Sure. We're going to have to revisit the just-in-time models because, as it stands now, we are running a just-in-time model, and the global supply chains are disrupted in this manner. Your business is under serious risk, so you are going to have. To build redundancies, and governments are going to end up having to build redundancies. I mean, how does the whole world suddenly realize that they do not have enough protective equipment, and we have to, so we are going to end up having to build redundancies in so many different areas, and it's going to be the norm. And these things come at a cost, and both the public sector and the private sector would have to build redundancies. In order to prepare themselves for a next crisis. And lastly, in South Africa, we have seen one of the criticisms of the South African corporate sector has been that the South African corporate sector is sitting on huge cash balances. And the way in which we have always said that when they are sitting on cash balances, it might be a reflection of confidence and that if you restore confidence, this cash, cash would be deployed. One of the lessons now is that the businesses that had thin cash reserves got into trouble very quickly. There is no business that can go bankrupt because it is keeping too much cash. The analysis that we have had in uh, banking and in financial markets which said that if you are sitting on cash, you have got a lazy balance sheet, give the cash back to the shareholders and all of that. Now when you need the shareholders because the business is in trouble, the shareholders is exactly the time when they themselves would not be in a position to place capital into businesses. So, buffers, building redundancies in both the public and the private sector, that is for me the biggest lessons from this crisis.
6: Hi, I'm Chris Bateman and this is the second podcast about my cancer survivor apprenticeship. If you missed out on my personal profile on my first podcast, I'm primarily a freelance healthcare journalist by trade, a <clears throat> husband and a father to two pre teenage daughters, a fly fisherman and a survivor of esophageal cancer. At the time of recording this podcast, uh, February 27th, 2020, I was three months into chemo treatment, having been diagnosed in November 2019, last year. I want to talk about how my family, friends, and even virtual strangers have rallied to support our family unit of four, morally, spiritually, and pragmatically. Luckily, by dint of my upbringing, profession, and personal choice, I err on the side of transparency. So for me, there's been no skulking in dark corners, hiding my cancer secret from others, or justifying that kind of behavior by saying I don't want to burden others with the news. I firmly believe these are unhealthy choices which deny survivors of any trauma, anywhere, the deep well of goodwill and selfless support available out there. Not to mention real empathy. Wherever you find yourself, physically and emotionally, someone else has been there, I promise you, as part of the human condition. I was brought to tears by a good friend of ours simply telling my wife that she lights a candle for me every morning. I grew up in the Catholic tradition of lighting candles for people. Obviously, other traditions also do this. But I never really got it until now. Another friend and neighbour gets suppers delivered to us on chemo treatment days. These can be busy, stressful days for my wife, Suzanne, who has to double up on school trips and transporting me to and from Bloberg Netcare Hospital, in between teaching extra maths to local matric kids in the mostly Afrikaans-speaking Durbanville community. Food, its preparation and consumption, is the glue that holds community together. Random acquaintances and friends often pitch up at our front door with a lasagna, chicken or beef dish, easily frozen but delicious fresh. I'm constantly reminded of several of the many reasons I married my wife. Her grounded pragmatism, razor sharp mind and memory, and ability to get things done regardless of the odds. She forgives easily and shoulders burdens without complaint. She's also one of those people whose calmness is an inverse proportion to how hairy things get. Examples include my daughter shivering in a fever and Suzanne not panicking when I spooked several burglars downstairs in our home while fetching a a 5am baby's bottle, or calmly undoing a tangled nest of trout fly line in our canoe while I battled the monster trout on the end of it. Not qualities I would list as among my greatest. People's reactions to cancer have fascinated me. They range from telling you well-meaning stories about their friend who survived stage 4 cancer to treating you like a rare piece of fragile china. Some people are uncomfortable talking about it or avoid it altogether. Others ask you outright if you're going to die. I think views are strongly influenced by one's own experience of cancer, however limited. We all make up stories and often readily believe myths in the absence of facts and in the face of vastly differing individual diagnoses. This forms the tint on our lenses. Again, it's part of the human condition. Just how unpredictable and different this renders people's responses is illustrated by my own two daughters and wife when I first broke the news to them. I'll let you hear it directly from them. First, Suze, my wife.
7: Chris came home one afternoon and asked me to have tea with him, which was strange because we didn't usually have tea that time of the afternoon. He told me he had a call from Dr. Estelle as he said that I felt myself go quiet and very calm he told me that the growth the biopsy shows that the growth is cancerous I felt like I was outside of my body like this was not happening to me I'm a person who believes that only good things happen I really believe in the goodness of life or that life is good and this was um, not good. So I felt so shocked. I looked at him and he gave me the stats of what the doctor had said. If you live in so many, in, in five years time, if the growth, had, growth hasn't spread and you're still alive, then you have this percentage chance of living. If the growth has spread a little and in a few years time or five years time you're alive, you have this chance of living. As he told me that I felt so sad I wished that it was something that was happening to me and not to him And that I could take this away from him I felt sad for our children And I felt sad for what it meant for us Strangely, I didn't feel scared that he won't make it Even hearing those stats and not knowing what the prognosis is I did not fear that he will die. I did fear what it would mean financially. A while before, Chris had started freelancing and we were just getting into the rhythm of finding our own income and living with an unsteady income. And the thought of not knowing whether Chris would be able to work or what this cancer would mean was absolutely petrifying. At the end of the conversation I was really calm and what I need to be in control or to feel like I'm handling things is to start planning. So we decided how would we tell the kids, what do we need to do next, where do we go next. In that few days after this conversation, Chris and I were kind of like in a cocoon. It was a very special time because we had to rely on each other for support. We hadn't told our families by, de- by then um, We might have each told a close friend But we were really having to rely on each other for emotional support And so I remember that as a very special time The moment we started telling friends and family we, It's like you dilute the information And also you have to deal with their reaction to it And every time you tell someone, you make it more real. The day came when we had to tell our children, and I remember our oldest child crying a lot. Um, She was heartbroken. And that brought it home for me. That made this a very real situation. I think I like a picture in my mind ...to help me keep calm and to help me feel in control. And so throughout this process, that is what's helped me, but also what has made the process harder. Every time we got information from a surgeon or the oncologist, I made a picture in my mind and that made me feel like I could deal with it. I felt in control. Um, but what I've learned in this cancer journey is that that picture in your mind is ever changing. And so every time we got different information or new information, I struggled with having to change the picture that I had. Um, I think what I have learned so far is that there's only one way to do this, and that is to surrender.
6: Susan and I thrashed out when we'd break the news to our daughters plus my parents and her widowed mum. Our main dilemma was risking disturbing the focus of our daughters during stress-inducing year-end exams versus chancing that they'd inadvertently find out from our closer friends whose children are their schoolmates. A similar theme applied to our parents. As a journalist, I know only too well how thick and fast the grapevine can be. Luckily, the exams were over in a matter of days and our kids heard from us first. We sat them down at the end of our bed one early weekend morning and stuck to the basic message. In other words, stage one, curable, treatable cancer. Here's how Hannah, our 11-year-old, experienced it.
8: I felt scared, frightened and a little bit nervous. And I learned a valuable lesson that it's okay to be scared and... To be frightened and to be nervous, and I learned it was early stage one. It's not. It's not too bad. It's normal in all kids. We actually first tell them about your dad having cancer. It. I also myself cried, and I also, also was feeling something that I never felt before in my life. I felt worried. I felt scared and I felt sad.
6: And today, how do you feel today about now that you know more about it?
8: Um, now I know now I know all about it and and been told more about cancer. I learned that it's only stage 1. Stage 4 is stage 4, stage 3 is way w- worse than stage 1. Stage 1 it can't spread easily stage four it can spread and stage three us and stage two spreads easily you know and i've been i told been told by the nurses that they taught me how it works at the chemo room it's it's like it all um can if your dad has cancer take your child to the chemo room so the child can see how it works then if then I felt I'm more calmly and not worried anymore because I know how it works and stuff.
6: And here's how Kate, our nine year old, remembers the day when she first heard the news. Katie?
9: Um I remember that we were um we were sitting at the edge of my mum and dad's bed on a early Saturday morning and then They settled us down and they told us that my dad has stage 1 cancer. And at the beginning I was kind of shocked because um, I thought it would be something way different. But um, it was cancer and because I was shocked was because I thought it was like something bad or something. But then um, they told me more about the stage 1 and I felt more calm. And more settles because it's. I saw that it wasn't that bad, and yeah. Now I now I did and then I didn't know it wasn't wouldn't be that that bad, and I thought it would be like um, my dad, but just he sleeps sometimes he sleeps more, sometimes he sleep he sleeps less, and I was right.
6: Now you have an uncle Davy who's got um, very short hair, uh, really bald. Um, yeah. Uh, what did you say about that?
9: Um, He had, he has like about one hair on his head, nearly bald and then I told my dad that maybe he's gonna look like um, Dave with his nearly one hair on his head but now his beard is like his head
8: would (laughs) have been.
6: As you can see, as different as chalk is from cheese, Illustrating what happens as the news ripples outwards in your family and social circle There are people though who calmly and confidentially absorb everything you tell them in great detail and then get on with the job of walking beside you Directing and advising your healing These are nearly always the medical professionals ranging from chemotherapy nurses their pharmacy assistants oncologists surgeons physicians audiologists and psychologists Even individual medical scheme case managers who can help ease the burden of managing your treatment finances My experience has been overwhelmingly positive If you ignore the nursing shortages in private hospitals impacting on the quality of patient-centric care by junior staff The most helpful advice I was able to use from the cancer survivors I interviewed was this Keep a single central file with all your essential medical documents in it and take it with you Or the event specific documentation wherever you go you are the ultimate guardian of your health discovery health medical scheme has the high-tech healthcare provider equivalent of such a file a digital platform with your full medical history and current profile accessible to all your participating professional caregivers it's called health ID it mitigates the vagaries of human memory especially for elderly patients Reduces and mostly prevents prescription drug clashes and puts participants on the same page I took the trouble to authorize all my caregivers to share my information Although some are not registered and unable to participate. I still felt it was worth it My oncologist GP and audiologist at least are now instantly connected when it comes to my holistic care I'd also say don't treat your doctors as mini gods ask questions and participate in your own care while obviously respecting their expertise skill and experience i don't think i'm alone in putting greater trust in somebody who has an excellent bedside manner and really seems to care though i admit this is not exactly scientific i was in a position as a health journalist to check out the credentials of my doctors and hear from their peers though this hardly makes me unique you can do nearly all of this via the internet talking of bedside manner I've invented a more cancer-appropriate term, chill chair chatter, or lazy boy lounger lingering. I'm specifically referring to the Good Hope Oncology Chemo Nursing Crew at Blauberg NetCare Hospital in Parklands, from where you can view Table Mountain across the bay. I've spent 30 hours there over the past three or so months, Uh, that's 10 chemo sessions of some three hours each. That's enough time to get to know your nursing sisters fairly well. The chemo room consists of five lazy boy lounger chairs alongside individual drip stands in a well-lit room with a central nursing station occupied by Sister Wendy Kopman and her senior nurse assistant Caroline Pleikies. Wendy is a streetwise, sports-mad, straight-talking, light-hearted beacon of hope and humour. Caroline is a more subtle, gentle, soft-handed, big-hearted, vocation-driven carer. Backing them up is the Sabah Marsman. The sunny-dispositioned, on-site pharmacist who ensures patients get, and correctly take, any chemo-related meds they might need, be it for nausea, rashes, headaches, or reflux. I call her the drug queen, a quirky reference to her having been born in the same country as Freddie Mercury. That's Iran. The combined effect this team has on patients reflects in the hugs, jokes, and warmth of survivors who pop in to see them, chatting up a storm. The chemo room is rendered vibrant, a space for authenticity and sharing, by dint of the staff's way of being and caring. I've seen the most challenged survivor struggling emotionally emerge from their chemo session with a smile on her face. Here's an example of Wendy's forthright banter. On my very first day of entering the chemo room, she quips as I unknowingly pass her, "Yeah, Mr Bateman, you were full of nonsense on the phone to me the other day. Now you creep in here as quiet as a mouse, eh? My earlier instinctive warming to her as we joked on the phone was instantly enhanced. This might even be fun, I thought. I've come to look forward to the alternating peace and quiet, intimate sharing and sometimes dark humour jokes that typify the chemo room. It's a place of authenticity and often unspoken support from fellow survivors. The empathy is tangible and forms a special camaraderie that says, we're all in this together, while asking the question, how can we make the best of this? In my next podcast, I'll reflect on my impending op due after this current three-month chemo stint, my fears around it, and how I'm drawing on the courage and attitudes I've seen my fellow survivors display. I'll also share the insights I've had using dream work, journaling, and and learned personal growth enhancing skills, not the least of which was a very exposing, imagined conversation I had with my anaesthetist. They say we treat doctors like gods. Well. I've realized I wasn't bargaining with my anesthetist and surgeon about the outcome of my operation. I was actually bargaining with God. I'll chat more about that in the next podcast. Cheers for now.
0: This has been episode 43 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.